Hi, and welcome to this episode of The VFX Show. I'm Mike Seymour, and this week we're having some love and some thunder with Thor, and I'm joined uh, by my co-host, Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I'm good. I'm ready to bring the thunder. Okay, so we're looking for Mr. Jason Diamond to bring the love, which Uh, would not be uh, unprecedented. No, I love Matt's thunder. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Right. I was so waiting for the thunder down under joke, but okay. Mm. Um, (laughs) As this was in fact filmed uh, down under as yes. Thor uh, embarks on his journey in what is being described by some as the Marvel rom-comp. Uh, so I guess uh, the sort of, in a sense, the sequel in very much, uh, I guess, in terms of plotline, actually, it is the sequel to the third Thor film. Uh, but these are a couplet uh, directed by the same famous New Zealand director. Jason, uh, what's your take on uh, this sort of humorous bent of uh, Marvel superhero-ness? I, I love Taika. I love his sense of humor and I love everything that he does. Um, however, um, this one, if we're going to get into some movie Siskel and Ebert stuff, uh, I, I thought this movie like was too parallel to Ragnarok. Like it, it would seemed like an extension of Ragnarok and I wanted him to do more. And I know, I know Marvel is script by committee, you know, a lot of times. So it's not, I'm not, I don't know who to place the point, the finger at. I felt like it could, it needed a little more oomph and like the jokes are always going to be there uh with him personally i think i just wanted to see more gore uh not uh gore like blood and stuff like the character yeah Gore the god butcher and i wanted to see him killing gods like that's his whole thing we just sort of see the aftermath of it most of the time and i wanted to see him actually you know doing what he does uh he was i have to say no, I agree with you. I, I feel like that why well, I was hinting at the sequel thing, because back in the day before sequels were franchises, you would get this situation where they cracked a good joke in the first one. So they had to crack virtually the same joke in the second one. And here, and I, I, I'm really interested in your opinion on this, Matt, but in this one, I got exactly that. For example, with the reenactment of uh, Ragnarok with the, um, the, I don't know, the Thor players, um, the the uh, guest actors that dropped in to pretend to be uh, in the film uh, reenacting for the audience and serving the purpose, I guess, of uh, informing those that hadn't seen Ragnarok what was going on. But that just felt like a joke that was incredibly funny in Ragnarok and unexpected and kind of a bit predictable in the second one. But I, I'm sensing, Matt, you're going to go even further. Well, maybe in a way that's different from what you guys might expect a little bit. Um, it has been now, I think, a week or two since I saw this movie, so I'm uh, rethinking about, I'm thinking about what I was, uh, my thoughts as I left the theater. And, um, I wouldn't say that I love this movie, but I will say this, I will say that if all the Marvel films took a page out of this movie and decided not to take themselves so seriously and to be more campy and fun and ridiculous, I think that would be a healthy thing. Like I'm, I'm agree. I think I've kind of had it with like the super serious Marvel universe. Like, and we were talking about um, before we got on the show, we were talking about things we're going to do in the, in the next few weeks. And there's a Rousseau brothers property that I just watched on Netflix. The, um, the guys who brought us some of the captain America action, right. And Avengers, I think. Yeah. Um, You're referring to the, the gray man, the gray man. Yeah. And yep. I have, uh, we'll talk about that when we talk about that, but I, I'm sort of excited for um, things to be like this movie was in a way, although I don't know if I liked it that much. Um, I liked that it was ridiculous and it was ridiculous in a way that I feel like was appropriate. And I even felt like at times uh, the director uh, who I think is awesome uh, filmmaker. I mean, I love uh, hunt for the wilder people probably more mm-hmm. than anything he's made. But I really liked how it felt like with the the scene where, you know, there's a, a play being told of the story to the kids and that the kids are sort of like this um, big thing in the, the climactic action scene. The kids mm-hmm. come in and save the day. It felt like it was like he was sort of tipping his hat at like the absurdity of the Marvel universe in and of itself. And that he was sort of saying like, look, like 
these are movies for little kids. These are movies for children. And he really made it a movie for children, I think. Although there was a lot of, you know, four-letter words in it. It's a PG-13 movie on that basis. But I, I think that, you know, for what it was, like, it's what these movies should be. Like, I think it's ridiculous when we start having all these superhero movies where, like, they're for grown-ups, you know, like the the super gritty, like, psychopath in the mm-hmm. dark world of psychopaths. Like, I'm kind of, I don't know if, like, but Christian so Bale, many of them, does it fly anymore? I yeah, guess. but Christian Bale, I think, pulled, like, this movie does have that balance. Like, you have the camp, and you have Christian Bale, who's delivering a pretty dark and serious character amongst the camp like i which is why i think it works they're not you know you had in the first one you had jeff goldblum i would say the first one the first taika movie you had jeff goldblum who was more of a campy villain or or whatever and that was cool because we had the hulk and there was you know it was a broader thing in this one i i like the balance of everything i didn't hate the movie there's lots of great stuff in it i just wanted him to do like take it another step in in a, in yeah. a take yeah. it they one more one more, more evolution stuff and less kind yeah. of revisiting the because yeah. i have to say this the first ever thor movie um i thought was like uh xanadu i just thought it was stupid i mean <laughs> yeah we did a show I mean, on it yeah and i'm like what the this is just i can't even take that's this the seriously. one that takes place in radiator springs mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah but it's just, I don't know, it's just not my cup of tea. Here's the thing. I think that um, you're right. I think it's good that it was pretty much aimed at kids. And it was good that it was in that respect kind of campy and kind of fun. Um, but I completely agree that this film could have been even more had he yeah, done the, the, the really good sequel that stood on its own more than just sort of re- retelling many of the same jokes um, again. Because the original one, as in, sorry, the the third film, the, yeah. the first of Tiger's <laughs> films, had such great lines in it, like that, uh, you know, hey, it's a guy from work. Yeah, it's good. You know, like, and you just were killing yourself laughing because it was original. Whereas now, many of the jokes are funny, but they're less original because they're kind of playing off the same beats. The other thing I will say, though, is I would much prefer to see this film than see another Doctor Strange, which required you to have watched several hundred hours of other marvel <laughs> movies and tv shows to have yeah. any idea what the hell was going on mm-hmm. like and even if he did understand what the hell was going on because i have watched most of those other marvel properties i just was like bored at points in doctor strange because guess what you know like um they they're fighting and it's going to be super super supernatural and they're going to do anything and anything's possible and yet while anything's possible it's also kind of looked fairly cliched um so for me dr strange was humiliated by everything everywhere all at once oh yeah that was like a small indie movie of a metaverse that just kicked dr strange's ass for originality visuals humor the rock sequence in that (laughs) yeah it just was like oh and by the way by the way, the Daniels turned down the Loki series to do their movie. So smartly, right, which I would, yeah. I would say, yeah. And those guys, there were five of them that did all the visual effects in that mm-hmm. film. And it, sometimes on laptops, way less powerful than I have lying around <laughs> my house. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just felt like Doctor Strange was like, yeah, pretentious, silly, ridiculous, over the top, and suffers from that problem that you get this escalating complexity now thor this new thor doesn't have that problem in so much as i don't know that or need to know the entire backstory of every character and everything that happened and they didn't bother explaining the guardians of the galaxy we just assumed that they existed and that they were fine funny and fine and if you didn't understand why one of them was a raccoon it didn't ruin the film um so i think that's good um but they are they have a problem the marvel kind of uh architects the grandfathers the the sort of senior behind the scenes um giant heads because sort of some people want the complexity some people want plot holes covered and everything to knit together really well and other people just don't care or find it too incomprehensible as to what the hell is going on and therefore disconnect from the material and you get this sort of servicing of hard hardcore fans and the I think we've seen this at a, yeah <laughs> and you have a couple of occasions where you've seen films that have appealed at a comic-con to the hardcore fans and just flopped to the general public because it's too self-referential too pretentious mm-hmm. so in all of those ways 
Uh, I think this was a good film and fun. It just felt like it's forgettable. No one, I think, is like going to claim that this was superior to Ragnarok and it won't. It's gone very well at the box office. It's done like, what, $660 million or something. So it's not a failure, but I just don't think it's going to have a shelf life of being like an incredible, um, powerful film. But, you know, like... Uh, I, will say, does... I will say Russell Crowe was amazing in it. <laughs> and Russell Crowe was pretty great. And great. <laughs> Russell Crowe was pretty funny. Um, but again, like even there, like you've got this problem of you getting to these sort of mega levels of God, multiple gods, mm -hmm. everything's possible. It's really hard to have a small story in a universe like that. So, yeah. you know, yeah. I don't know where the multiverse ends up, but I guess if you're, I'm not into the graphic novels, but if you were, I guess they just, somebody said the problem also is they need to reset and the novels do this. And now the films are trying to do this, which does say to have an Avengers with like Endgame with everybody, you have to have a lot of small individual stories that let you build up to that because everything mm -hmm. can't be like the big thing. And so you end up with a bunch of sort of oddly small films and isolated films that can't connect all together until what's coming, which is of course, uh, what was announced recently at Comic-Con, which Secret is the big, Wars. Um, Secret Wars, yeah. Yeah. So Secret Wars too, technically, but yeah. Um, I'm already yawning. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Uh, also interestingly, you know, it's interesting that Guardians of the Galaxy and and the comedy Thor, Taika Thor, kind of linked up because James Gunn was the first guy to introduce that kind of comedy with the first two Guardians right. of the Galaxies. I mean, he, I mean, the first Guardian of the Galaxy was the was the funniest and kind of like off kilter one. And it was great, even and two was even great, but even two had its little kind of uh, like you know still kind of didn't fully go just like this one it's hard to keep up that like the shock of a new style mm -hmm. making its way into the into the pantheon there i kind of feel like yeah and i feel like the both the uh taika watiti and the uh, james gunn uh movies in the marvel universe they do kind of feel like like they're taking a this is like a, if you haven't seen this in a long time like we've all seen the tv show but the adam west batman movie yeah. <laughs> so funny it is really the shock, really the can of shock repellent yeah, yeah. i mean and, the, and running around with the bomb above his head yeah. on the dock <laughs> trying to figure out where to throw it and there's a, a bunch of like baby ducklings you know and it's like it's so Nuns, ridiculous so, yeah. but it's yeah. it's really really funny and it's you know intentionally so obviously right and i think that you know when these films embrace that kind of the absurdity of the enterprise it can still be really fun for what I really think should be the target audience, which is, you know, children, <laughs> not really the sort of arrested development adults. But I think, you know, it's when it starts to veer into this territory of this kind of hyper seriousness that it just becomes it's, it's I would I would agree with you exhausting. if I hadn't seen Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight, which oh, was that was so dumb. So great. <laughs> the second that movie was, is so great. I think I think yes. you meant the word. I think you meant the word great. <laughs> With uh, Heath Ledger as just uh, giving the most terrifyingly insane. Who was so story. affected by the incredible drama of his performance that he died. Okay, let's not go there on that because we're on like sacred ground talking about uh, <laughs> one of Australia's most revered and uh, and I mean, missed actors. Uh, what a waste, I guess. What a waste is what what we're going for. Yeah, exactly. Because let's face it, like that was uh, so. So maybe you have to go to the comical to then allow room for somebody to come through with the serious that actually works, as opposed to the serious that's pretentious and dumb. But then we're here to talk about the visual effects. So, so in this film, there are some odd visual effects um, that needed to be done. Um, things that on the page. Well, I, I should confess right up. I see things in descriptions and i think that's the dumbest thing i'm ever i can't imagine a raccoon or a tree talking that'll never work it'll be a complete <laughs> flop and then i go and it's really great but here i was like i'm sorry it's a kind of tourist boat pulled <laughs> by magical goats on a <laughs> rainbow of what i'm sorry what <laughs> uh so in the broad strokes maybe starting with you jason how how well do you think those visual effects were executed to keep the audience in the film, given that some of them were pretty out there? Well, I mean, that's the, that's the key to the absurdity 
right? You can have you can have giant goats pulling a sled full of kids and not go eh, because it's fully in the it's fully in the the pantheon. Although personally, I thought the goats were a little over the top just to have you know just because they're screaming and whatever. I think screaming goats was like ten years ago at this point, but um, <laughs> I. I yeah, was so ten years ago. <laughs> well, I remember everyone was watching Screaming Goats on uh, YouTube forever. You know, I don't know, it was a thing. Uh, maybe not in Australia. Uh, but uh, anyway, I mean, it's fine. Like, I, I, there were no, there were no visual effects that seemed uh, ridiculous. Although I can't remember half the movie for some reason. But uh, the, um, the it, I was, I was struck more by the visual effects that that I really liked. Um, you know, like Gore's the black and white planet that was like a little Fellini vibe, mm. you know, and just I thought that was super cool and really well executed, dramatic, dramatic, and you know, with his little like kind of like sending him away, like you you got to see Gore's power and how he was executing his vision, as it were. Um, Though almost jumped the shark with the uh, arrival of the goats and the sled, as it were, bumping into the planet. You know, it was a scale mm-hmm. trick. Yeah. Um, which I was like, okay, well, <laughs> if we cut to the surface, they're going to be standing on a giant marble, um, mm-hmm. which of course they were. But anyway, Matt, what did you think of the visual effects? Uh, I mean, I think there's some great effects in it, as there always are in these big budget uh, temple kind of movies. There's a few. Uh, effects from a design standpoint and and an execution standpoint that i just think were they felt cheaper um but with regards to the goats uh as a uh you know half swede half dane uh the um two goats of thor uh that pull him around the uh uh, Sky, our tooth grinder and tooth gnasher. I don't know if they ever say that in the movie, but that's part of Norse mythology. I like the screaming goats. Like it was, it was funny. Then it was like stupid. And then it was like funny again, because it was so stupid and they kept doing it. And I think um, there's some spectacular visual effects in this movie. Um, but some of the environment work, like I thought that the, um, the, the big like God palace where Zeus is like, was so um it felt like a a lot of it felt really like flat like a lot of it felt really 2d like it didn't it didn't really have the i put that down to the lighting do you think it was the lighting i just thought the lighting was so flat and even and it may have been lighting and but also a little bit of like design uh in terms of the but yeah, like with there's not enough like sort of shadow or yeah. volumetrics or anything to kind yeah. of give it any depth. And so it started to feel really flat. Um, it didn't really matter because that whole scene is really kind of a fun comics scenario that's taking place. And the the, the lightning bolt, you know, the actual mm-hmm. lightning bolt thing is such a funny uh, device as a weapon. And um, and then I think there were. I like the tiny planet thing. I thought that like you were saying, Jason, I think that was pretty cool. Um, and then just sort of the, you know, the massive number of like wild kind of particle effects, the transportation, you know, from one mm-hmm. location to another with the rainbow bridge and the ability to kind of zap from here to there. That stuff was fun. And I like the effects that weren't like the goats and the, and the tourist boat, like they weren't, um, they were they were great visual effects because they were so like stupid like so dumb in terms of their design you know like and it made it but they were so well done that it seemed like it was like a real thing like to play mm-hmm. into that universe of absurdity absurdity and to do it in an effects way i would think those would be really fun shots or fun sequences to work on where you're like i get to work on the stupid tourist boat like that's gonna yeah. be pretty fun you know but was it a implementation or a conceptual design problem like if we start at the beginning with the oasis i thought the the daughter dying which i mean i think should have been bigger i should have like i think somebody told me in the original it was like the wife and the daughter but just became the daughter but i thought that was powerful and looked good but then when he just stumbles across the oasis it just looked so kind of i don't know hokey to me now i, I guess that an oasis is sort of meant to be like out of the blue complete shift but it just felt Wait, remind me what what was the oasis? Where the gods, so where he meets the gods. It's the first and, god, and he gets the sword. 
So it's like he's lying there, his daughter dies, there's nothing for millions of miles right. of desolate nothing, and then suddenly he stumbles across a incredibly lush, super right. bougie-like, overly... God's oasis, yeah. God yeah. oasis. And it just... See, the thing about that, I remember Stu Mashwitz talking about this once with a shot that he was working on for like, like one of the, maybe I think he was working on the Die Hard or something. But anyway, it was like a, he was just saying the trouble is if you, the script calls for something incredibly unnatural, like a massive environment change in one foot of physical space, it's incredibly hard to pull it off because you've got just the sort of illogical nature of it, fighting the visual selling of it, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? And so I, like, I guess with a lot of these things, what I would have liked to have seen is like a, a DOP have lit stuff that then, you know, was the way that it was. And here it just felt like, yeah, we just go to perky, super saturated. But I mean, the lighting should have been completely different when you're out exposed in, you know, completely desolate desert to in a canopied green lush environment. And it just... The lighting didn't film the change, the chromatic levels changed. Um, so it was just, there was no way I believed that they existed in the same universe. I just thought it was yeah. hallucinating. And I think it was jarring uh, thematically too, though. I think it's it's it was twofold. Like there's the visual piece, but then the sort of drama and like uh, seriousness of the sort of the dying child then coupled with the sort of fun yeah. frivolity and mm -hmm. colorful, like saturated universe of the, the God who doesn't care, you know, um, is both, uh, yeah, it, it's such an extreme gear shift that it was hard to, um, well, it's the tonal, what we really want, isn't it? It's the tonal Tom? shift of the script. Really. I remember sitting there being like, Whoa, this is really fast. Like his kid just died. And now he's like, Oh, well, He's in extreme grief. So, oh, and like a minute later, the gods being like, oh, we don't care about you, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, now I'm angry. You know, like harness the anger and the sword's like, hey, I'll be your, like, kill the god. And you're like, wow, this is all like a lot of, a lot of story that's getting pushed through. Yeah, meanwhile, yeah. meanwhile, just after this scene, we pretty much get to, um, what's his name? The rock guy. Uh, I forget his Korg. name. Right. Uh, Korg saying, giving like an entire expositional story to the kids about Ragnarok. Yeah. Right. See, I, I yeah. See, the thing Which is, I didn't I mind, think... but it, it's no, like, no, I like that. we're going to, we're going to rush this. Yeah. To get, make Gore the bad guy. Okay. Now, you know, he's a bad guy. And then we're going to get to this, get to the Thor stuff. I mean, they could have added 20 minutes to this film and it, cause this was about one of the shortest. Apparently Marvel they films cut out two recent. hours from this movie. <laughs> yeah. But I just felt like it because. I feel like when the humor works really, really well, it's an emotional release. And mm -hmm. so you get humor that kind of, now I didn't get that. I didn't get that the, that the humor that happened from the dumb gods that uh, he vanquishes at the beginning in the Oasis was any kind of an emotional release from the dying child. And similarly, I had a problem with the whole idea of the uh, Jane Foster cancer death. Yeah. Um, now, you know, cancer is a bit close to my heart at the moment as, uh, <laughs> <Me> <laughs> so, <too>. but, <laughs> but you know, the, her dying of cancer in that end sequence, um, that, that just felt, uh, emotionally disconnected from the sort of silliness of the kids attacking. And I get that it was a kid's thing, but if it's a kid's thing and you want to play, like you could have had a really decent, um, upsetting scene that there was a release from in the way that a wake works as a release at a funeral or that yeah. in society you you know in the worst possible times you'll crack a joke to just yeah. like humor in a you know if you've got a movie about i don't know i'm speaking something a prisoner of war camp right or um you know somewhere where it's like a really atrocious like what was that film uh that won the um academy award for the concentration camp and it was uh the italian comedian oh yeah life is he, beautiful life is beautiful i mean that's a magnificent example of just the most exquisite angst and then counterpointed with humor in a yeah. the most beautiful and, and genius way. And so I guess, so I would me, argue even, I would argue even a monster calls Jay Bayona's movie, which is, mm -hmm. which is about yeah. almost the same thing has 
com- not it's not as much comedy, but it 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 it's, it services the dramatic nature of the mother's death from cancer and the child's dealing with it in in a very respect respectful and emotionally taught way, which could have happened here in a in a a little more uh, I guess other than knowing it's going to happen just because of how they set it up with the hammer, keeping her alive and gore saying all this stuff he says, it seems like an inevitability. So when it happens, you're like, Oh yeah, I was just waiting for it to happen. Not, I had hope that it might not happen. And then it happens. Yeah. I think I would say too, I think, you know, the challenges in uh, for the filmmakers, you know, from a writing and directing standpoint, for sure, I think is in the, the, the preordained nature of some of these characters, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have, excuse me, the God butcher uh, who they present with a really interesting sort of backstory, like that dilemma, that sort of existential dilemma and the sort of uh, if there is the existence of God or gods, you know, the philosophical sort of debate around, you know, uh, why is it that, uh, we choose to believe or not believe in these things. And do, do they have any uh, agency? Do we have, do we have agency? Is our life fate? All the, all the kind of those sort of philosophical things are really fascinating, right? Those are really interesting questions. And the, it's posed in the very genesis of that character, the God butcher character mm-hmm. through his backstory. But then the degree to which we even invest any kind of, uh, there's no serious discussion of it with regards to no. the the main god of the story, right? Thor. It's like it doesn't really ever come back up again. It, and it, I'm sorry, I'm kind of contradicting myself. Like I like it because it's a kids' movie, but by definition, these characters are sort of asking for a more deeper philosophical narrative that we don't really get. And so the tonal difference between those, the push and pull of those two things. I think uh, the kids movie part wins out maybe thankfully in a way, but like it's. Well, that's what I was saying earlier about not seeing Gore killing the other gods. Those are your moments to explore those, those things, or even, even moments after he killed them and he's soliloquizing, or if that's even a word, but you know, he's giving a soliloquy or doing something about why he's doing something. He's basically an atheist at this point right. who's who's yes. could make those jokes land better yeah. too you know yeah. like but, they become but more our that villains worked, i'm not original in saying this but our villains worked best when we kind of think they're right do you know yeah. what i mean like when you get like thor now i mean thor's case uh sorry not thor thanos's case um mm. like it's not logic that really withstands a lot but to a certain extent you kind of buy into his you know thing that these planets are unsustainable and blah 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 and like if you can make a villain plausibly bad um then there's just so much more interesting and uh yeah so i think they could have done more then i will say this though where i thought the visual effects did work really well because I, I felt this like this is conceptually reflected in what we've been discussing up now conceptually reflected in the visual effects and that the effects yeah. were jarring for me because of the jumps but underlining the rom-com comedy romantic comedy stuff with the hammer and the axe, the visual (laughs) effects were like totally on the money. Like Mm -hmm. right there, they were serving the story. They gave those inanimate objects personality. They gave them exquisite timing. Um, When he's, uh, I think it's even in the trailer or maybe in one of the released clips when he's like trying to get the, the, uh, the hammer to respond and his axe slowly (laughs) comes around the corner and stuff. And like, the way that that was built up and uh and any time there was and these are minor visual effects they're not like you know mega spectacular yeah but those but are the ones those are the ones that them. work yeah i mean mm-hmm. yeah just like just like we say that the you know the comps out the window of a car are the ones that really make the show work not i mean you expect you expect spectacle to be fake right and it's not that's though that's an obvious one but when you're immersed in the world and you're to your point, Mike, you're you're empathizing or finding humor with the action of an inanimate object that's hovering, and it's being imbued with with characteristics of an actor. The visual effects are on fucking point because absolutely on point. Yeah, they're they're selling beats, comedic beats in the story, not just like a big cool planet, which is also cool, but. You know, and you said that earlier too. I think, Mike, in a in a way, you were sort of getting at the same thing at the beginning of our conversation when you said, 
you know, thinking about uh, Doctor Strange and the multiverse and the in, there's incredible visual effects in that. But like, I don't care. Like, it's so like boring and overly serious with endless bombastic music, like every turn, you know, it's like, it's a snooze fest. But then you look at everything everywhere all at once with this tiny crew of like visual effects artists who, you know, aren't maybe producing like the top, top tier of visual effects that you find in a Marvel film, but the effects work and they work really well in sync with all of the elements of story. And so to get visual effects to really hit home and be beyond just like, oh, visually they're cool. They really do in the end, like they need to be in a great story, you know, with great characters. And when they're not, they don't necessarily have that impact that I think as artists that we want them to have, you know, like they might still be really cool and like, wow, it's an amazing simulation or that's a really cool aesthetic or a cool look. But it makes such a big difference when like it's 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 connected somehow to the everything else in a way, the art direction of the effects in a way. Oh, yeah. To use a musical analogy, I feel like you get this uh, wave every once in a while of uh, preposterously pompous pop or pretentious rock where they're throwing every instrument at the uh, the sort of this uh, operatic, uh, you know, extravaganza of like, you know, self-indulgent guitar solos overlaid with, you know, and then you'll get in whatever generation it is, whether it's the Pistols and the Clash or it's like grunge out of Seattle, you'll mm-hmm. get this kind of honest, stripped back, but genuine kind of, you know, like when you see that uh, kind of Nirvana teen angst thing, it doesn't feel like it's been packaged. It feels like it's, it's genuine. incredibly genuine. And I think that the audience today visually is so... Uh, literate. They're so across stuff. And what they want is the authenticity that comes from some kind of genuine, genuine kind of buy-in. It, you just, it's really hard to get that through 18 layers of like uh, set dressing. Do well, you know what I mean? It's like you, well, it's, it's like just, that, it's like that joke at the beginning of there's a great <clears throat> album by the band Negative Land from San Francisco. Um, and the album opens with a, a record producer coming on and saying this, the track you're about to hear has been cross format focused for maximum airplay <laughs> success. It's designed to break on radio. And he goes into talking about all this and it's so corny, but I sometimes feel like with the effects you're describing, it's like this visual effect has been designed uh, uh, for, <laughs> has been cross format focused for maximum movie success, you know? And it's like, is that really, uh, it, we've seen it, you know, we've, in a weird way, we've seen it all. Like we got to see something new and, or it needs to come back to being connected to story. Well, that's somehow. what, that's what I, I would, I would not hesitate to, to re uh, call what Mike said earlier about everything everywhere all at once. I mean, that is, that is the punk rock response yeah. to these things because it has the spectacle, but it has it with a genuine, um nod to story well (laughs) chaos but 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 it's but it's focused on story all those things are not spectacle for spectacle they're literally story points being augmented by visual effects yeah and and in a very humoristic way in a in a or humorous way (laughs) in a my language is off tonight but uh in a in a emotional way yeah you know, in so many ways like i'm sorry but hot dog fingers in most way circumstances don't work <laughs> right <laughs> but in this case you would read that and go to your point mike earlier about reading something in a script and seeing if you know you might read that in the script and be like i you know i mean cool it's impossible let's, let's try yeah. it but like it totally works and yeah. because it because it comes from a genuine place of emotion and story and not a need to satisfy a technical uh bullet point somewhere yeah can i read out the visual effects companies that apparently worked on this so there's wetter rising sun frame so ilm method luma uh base edi fin design and effects in sydney cinesite uh and that's just um the ones that I know of, of the top. there's a lot of companies that are contributing to this. And so to those artists, we acknowledge that like they're doing what they're asked, um, especially the ones that I'm not referring to in 
uh, in that list that worked on Doctor Strange. They're doing what they're asked, right? They're like delivering and of course. You know, good on you. But yeah, it's so hard to deliver the kind of stuff that I think resonates with an audience as opposed to being fast food. You know what I mean? Like the That's so perfect you say that because that's exactly what I'm thinking as you're describing it. It's like I look, I'm so stoked that there are so many uh, opportunities and jobs for visual effects artists like all over the world doing amazing work on huge films like and small films like it's so it's it's an em embarrassment of riches really right now and it, and it's great it's i think it's spectacular and i love watching it i'm always excited to see you know what's going on but i do think you know there is a, a danger that I do feel like I see a little bit of, at least to me, it's a danger. Cause I don't know if I like this, but you said the fast food, it's like, yeah, it's like the McDonald's, like, you know, it's people eat it, but it's not good for you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's a difference between going to a great authentic restaurant that you discover when you're traveling and then going to that cuisine back in LA as part of a franchise. Yeah. And so, uh, not that I've done it yet, but I'm looking forward to traveling to Mexico in the new year. And I imagine that eating authentic Mexican in Mexico is going to be a much more memorable experience than meeting, eating really nice, but pretty homogenized Mexican in, uh, in California from, you know, really nice, well done, clean, but just make sure you put a kind of lot of lime juice over everything that you <laughs> eat. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Uh, but you get my point, right? Like it's just, and, and I'm going to continue bringing this back to everything everywhere, but, um, and again, not a knock to all the companies doing, you know, good work that they're asked to do on these movies. But when like 40 companies are doing work versus a dedicated team, as you mentioned, Mike, of five, six people on a film that had an, a, a very comparable scale in a way, um, much lower budget, you know, there is a synergy amongst the small team, much like the ILM doc that we're all watching now, you know, there's a synergy amongst this team that is everyone's focused on helping each other. And I know it's not possible at that scale and the factory nature of Marvel movies. And, yeah. and it just, it's just, a, it's a nature of the beast. I get it. But, but there is a, there's a collective sort of creativity that comes together to make things better than than each piece. I know? do love I mean, this this lens that we're looking at this movie through where we're sort of bringing these other things into play. I think, you know, it's it's a conversation that like, I don't think we've really had before, but it's one that I think is really, really relevant right now. Like it's an interesting I mean, I, conversation. Yeah, I, I should point out, I, I'm not against the big, like no, I like- not at, the, no, the, not at all. The not last Spider-Man, the last Spider-Man film nailed it for me because they had these other Spider-Man come, Spider-Man? men coming in uh the other uh actors playing spider-man from the earliest uh, earlier versions of the film and so like that gave it real heart and and it felt more like you know there were some genuine um visual effects that were kind of banging up against these good thematic elements of people dealing with their version of what was going to happen to their loved one from whatever universe they're in and stuff and but having said all of that, nobody, I think, really was saying the thing that they loved about the Spider-Man film was the awesome visual effects of when the shield dropped off the Statue of Liberty and smashed down. Great visual effects, really good discussion, sim, and all that sort of stuff. But you kind of get that now as a given. And so you have to find those other dimensions mm -hmm. that kind of connect in. Now, of course, there's a huge amount of digital effects in getting Spider-Man to be on screen because he obviously isn't an actor flying around in a suit anymore it's you know a cg character so those visual effects are completely in line and they're obvious and they're front of house and we know that they're visual effects but boy they're connected to the character's journey so much more mm -hmm. uh in a way that that matters and i think it's it's just tough uh you know what i'm reminded of i'm reminded of that scene in in raiders of the lost ark where the guy comes out with the sword and does the big you know like mm -hmm. sword display and indy yeah. just goes yeah reaches over gets his gun out of his pocket and just shoots the guy right there and the audience just loved it because you were setting yourself up for this elaborate movie fight that's going to have you know insanely great kung fu and indy's gonna blah 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 blah, and he'll obviously get out of it and they just went yeah you know i'm just gonna shoot him and it's just like yeah yes there was some yeah, real authenticity of that of course subverting expectations yeah 
But you you would shoot him, right? Because you'd stand you no chance gun. against yeah. a guy with a machete. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're really threatened, I would. Um, so, <laughs> so I feel like that's kind of where we're kind of, there are a couple of places where you just feel like, really, really, this is just overly complicated for complicated sake. I don't know how you solve that as a visual effects company because you know you want the work. well it's work for hire and i don't know that you, you don't yeah. have to solve it i think yeah it's important to note like the if there's a you know if we're assigning uh i, I mean blame it's not the right word but like meaning to this responsibility yeah yeah it's like it's not the responsibility of any visual effects company or the visual effects artists like you know visual effects artists and companies are by and large doing great work across the board on yeah. so many different kinds of projects. But yeah, I think when we look at the spate of uh, the film industry writ large and the sort of streaming, you know, sort of properties that are being generated, there is, you know, like an embarrassment of riches in terms of content being generated, certainly by well, some of these big companies. And I think that there is, this danger of the content itself becoming very, like you say, fast food well, in a I, way. And I would argue that it does, there are movies at scale or at least scope of scale. I don't know what budgets are for all these movies, but like I just saw Nope and I'm not gonna get into what it's about or whatever, but it's shot by Hoyt Van Hoytem on IMAX, you know, like it's not a indie movie and yet it's, made in an indie movie fashion there's like seven five seven main characters and the visual effects are stunning mm. and super imaginative and granted that is a singular vision film by a filmmaker who's not attached to any franchise or anything that he he or she has to you know dr you know uh stick to or whatever but you know those moments are there they're being they're being done, you know, Marvel may not be the place where those can happen, given the kind of, large, well, do you think encyclopedic nature of the... Do you guys think films? that audiences, like, I mean, we're talking about it from one perspective, right? But do yeah. you guys think that, you know, long-term, are audiences going to continue to consume bombastic Marvel films and, like, you know, the next Star Wars series, like no matter how bad well, the think, acting and writing are, like they're just gonna continue. But I think to they have the same problem in the Star Wars franchise they have in this, which you get these overly complicated stories that require you to have seen so many other movies for them to like, to work. And then they become episodic rather than, than theatrical. And when that is happens, it, is that they lose some of their magic. No, I don't. That's why I don't think the Star mm. Wars films have gone as well as they could have. Um, they just keep on trying to find another um it's like gap spotting oh i yeah, found a gap yeah. here there's a gap here we can fill that gap with an right. entire movie and it's like i don't yeah. need to know how every offhand comment yeah. that was made in the original no. 77 film actually played out in right. back narrative i <laughs> yeah. don't need to know that um can i ask you one thing i want to get back to just mm. a very specific question and i'd like you to compare the last batman film and this one in terms of virtual production because one of the criticisms that i heard uh discussed briefly is that the lighting that I'm finding problems with, the lack of really imaginative lighting is down to uh, stuff that's happening because of the use of the virtual production sets. It's very good, hard to get this point. really good uh, quality of lighting. And so what you're getting in these kind of fairly overly um, evenly lit kind of super backgrounds yeah. that are expansive and ginormous. Now, the ways I want to compare it with the Batman film is they did the same thing in Batman. They were using the virtual, but we commented on that uh, when we were discussing it, I think with the idea of like, just there were some shots that had real scope when he's uh, in some of the sequences that we were clearly looking down at Gotham from that disused building. Yeah. And that's virtual set. In this one, of course, they've done virtual set again. Uh, ILM in Sydney uh, set up an entire uh, stagecraft system. I don't fault the stagecraft. What I'm concerned about is it's leading to this rather um, television lighting. That's the only way to describe well, yeah. it. Really. I, That's a great I, point. I, I think the problem is, is that too many people are getting sold on the concept of lighting with the volume. Hmm. Like, oh, because I was watching a bunch of behind the scenes or trying to find a bunch of behind the scenes stuff. And there's a, there's a comment by Taika where he's like, you know, we're, we're using the volume on this movie. And, you know, it's great because the actors get lit by the wall and you're like, but do they like it's the most diffused 
broad light. And again, we go back to Mandalorian, like Mandalorian works because he's reflective. And that's a totally different thing than a normal person in getting this broad diffused light. And I know that there's companies, I've spoken to some of them that are working on, you know, movable panels and all sorts of stuff. So like DPs can get lights in there. And the DP on this movie is Baz Idoine, who was Greg Frazier's, you know, ACAM op on Mandalorian and then was the DP on Mandalorian season two. Uh, obviously a very skilled operator and DP and obviously very skilled with the wall. Because uh, it was Greg Frazier that did Batman. So, yeah. yeah. Well, well, Sorry, I was, I was just ahead, real fast. I just want to yeah. say one of the things about the the sequence in the the Batman film that I think makes it so successful, though, as well, if memory serves, is that it's it's backlit. Yeah, and so they're kind of more silhouette in the foreground, mm-hmm. and so that by definition is creating this sense of depth. And when we exactly. see it in the wide shot, we get that sort of classic silhouette kind of sunset mm-hmm. magic hour vibe. And when we push in close and we're on the actors. You know, then we have a, a shallower depth of field, and things go get pushed out in the distance. Yeah, and, and they're and they're lifted up. Yeah, and so that it has the it, it. There's a cinematographer's sense of real world lighting that's going into lighting. You know that scenario, mm-hmm. and it's just it's it's a great use case for that tool set. But I think to what Mike is saying that the idea that you know if you're using it for everything, yeah, in every way, it does become. It's like it is TV. It yeah, feels it's like flat. television. Yeah, it's good, feels like it's broadcast, good TV. It's, it's broadcast yeah. lighting, though. It's broad, flat, yeah. limited yeah. shadow lighting, and there's not contrast. Yeah, yeah. And you can which, see it which in Loki, in really Obi Wan, yeah. in Boba Fett, in this. There are moments. This one's not too bad, like because um, you know the, it's a feature film, and they have a little bit more time to focus on it. Whereas an episodic, they're kind of blowing through stuff. But um, you know those. It's Ah, it kills me because virtual production has such a value, but there's, there's, it, it has to move faster towards the giving DPs the ability to light and not be so beholden to this broad giant softbox that everyone's standing in. I think part of that yeah. too, maybe will be experience experiential. You know, it's like the more people get experience with that tool set, maybe you'll start to see yeah. a greater development of, techniques and ways and i mean some people are already doing that but i think you'll see it sort of get parsed out it's a further small and pool. further yeah it's a small pool right now for sure i think that one of the problems is that it looks good like if you do episodic lighting on actresses in you know a top drama or a kind of a you know whatever pick a major a-list drama the good wife whatever that's what they're doing they're putting this big softbox to the side of the actress and she looks great and she <laughs> looks rich and uh te- you know it's just a nice looking thing but it's not a theatrical reality or not even like a dramatically kind of interesting lighting. It's just a, you know, like, and so I think that what you're getting is there's a craft in producing this incredibly unrealistic lighting that a good DOP does, but it's cinematically phenomenally interesting. And uh, you'll see it in, um, so let me, let me, throw gasoline on the flame. So I'm looking forward to Oppenheimer, uh, Chris Nolan's new film, right? And like, you just, <clears throat> and so if you look at any really great uh, Chris Nolan films, and they're all really, really great, as I'm sure you'd agree, Matt, then uh, you just have really interesting lighting on the characters and like they are just so grounded and so dramatic and so of the moment in their lighting that never feels like they're on a stage, never feels like they're oh, on yeah. a set. They certainly never feel like they're in a virtual kind of overly lit, everything's lit up kind of space. J- Jason now, and I made a great joke, though. <laughs> we were joking around with you, Mike, and Jason and I made we made some good jokes. I think we were joking that uh, Christopher Nolan was going to split the exposition, Adam, right, and start a chain reaction in Oppenheimer. I, I will I will, I will, 100% agree with you, Mike, and I think, Matt, well, I think all three of us can agree that Christopher Nolan's movies look fantastic. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. They're just so boring. Okay, good. Let's stop there. So we'll stop there. <laughs> we'll stop there in agreement. Okay. And yeah. so yeah, but again, I agree. We're not like against a, a beautifully lit film. Just... Yeah, a beautifully lit film is a beautifully lit film. It doesn't matter even if it's broad, broad lighting if it fits the story. It's just TV 
and to what you're saying, like sort of more episodic lighting where they really have to grind the pages through the day and they don't have the time to relight on the flips and, and all the stuff and really get in there that yes, you, you have a more light from the ceiling kind of broad roll in some specials on some stands and go uh approach he, he would be but i don't if think I walked on, on the set, should have if i walked that. on the set of yeah if i walked on the set of thor and i was being a dickhead and i was just being an arrogant <laughs> jerk because clearly i'm not you know going to walk onto the set of thor but if i did that i would literally say just where's the motivation for the lighting because that's what i miss in these scenes mm -hmm. like uh, from a cg point of view if i walked into a room and they were doing environment work i'd be like where's the motivation for this lighting it's my criticism of the oasis it's my criticism of the god pantheon it's my criticism of the end sequence with the kids there's just all these miraculous sources of light now of course the amazing work that dops do on proper dramatic cinematic masterpieces also fake where light comes from all the time, but it's motivated. It's motivated and it's sense, it's a sense that you get of there being real light, albeit like completely not what would happen if you're a documentarian. Maybe and in this movie makes though, cinematographers. maybe in this movie, part of the problem with that is that, you know, when you think about lighting uh, uh, for most, you know, dramatic films, right? You're, you're on earth and we have the sun right? Or we have, you know, sodium vapor lights in the street mm -hmm. or whatever it is, right? And so we kind of have a sense of like what are light sources, like in a naturalistic environment. In the Thor film, from a story point and a sort of design point, these events are taking place on these other worlds, these other planets in space where like, what is the light source? And so maybe a solution in a film where we're sort of in this abstraction is to think about, all right, what's each location in which we're going to shoot? And let's define specifically uh, yeah. what are the light sources that mm -hmm. we're going to deal with in order to enhance the dramatic qualities of uh, of lighting that we could utilize, you know, for story point, character point, what have you. And maybe that's just something that in this experiment, you know, you get your 11 by 17 uh, printouts of your awesome Photoshop, Photoshop concept art, you know, and you're pinning them up in the production office and you're like, oh, this looks great. This looks great. Things are looking good. And everybody's kind of on the same page, but there hasn't been a, maybe a discussion specifically about like these points, like uh, in terms of dramatic lighting in each well, scenario. And also that gives you the opportunity in your in your sort of visual effects bonanza that you're sort of married to in these films to have some visual exposition like when you come into the scene in the god palace like let's get some visual language of where the light source is you could mm -hmm. hide it like but it's part of the sweep of the thing you could see some big you know a bunch of like guys standing up on the top angling gold things or something to like create a spotlight on Zeus or, you know, just these little things that at least tell you that there are mechanisms and things at work to create light. You only have to show one example. Yeah. The audience goes, oh, okay. Light is being directed in some way. I mean, yeah. it's a, I'm just making it up, but you know, it's a, uh, it, yeah, no, gonna be expositional. That's... Let's do it with visual yeah. stuff. Not I, I think that's, a, I, I would totally agree. I guess the question you need to ask yourself is, let's take my Oasis sequence because I'm beating up on that tremendously. <laughs> if that was lit like Gorillas in the Mist, so it looked like it had motivated lighting and it was yeah. professionally done by a really good cinematographer that was playing for that, would it have been any less or more funny? Could it still be funny and be lit sure. like that? Or did it have to be? Well, I don't think that scene has humor in it really. The God Isn't is he meant to be a bit over the top, the God, and a bit like he, he is, he is, but it's not. I don't think it's a play for humor, it's a play for motivation for Gore to be disgusted by the person or the entity that he's been worshiping all this year, these time, and to and to lose that faith and become the basically the atheist on well, the then spot. It, it really failed for me because I thought that it was meant to find them just comical and thus dismissive if you're meant to find them gluttonous and unworthy there could have been much stronger ways no, to agreed. do that without losing a pg kind of rating well, you they don't it. have to be caligula 
but you make a great point like the the opening scene in raiders when he jumps out and he uh, from the the ball chasing him and mm-hmm. he looks up and you see the guys the the mm-hmm. uh i can't remember the name of the tribe that's but a, that's yes yeah, they have the spears shot, and they're, they're backlit yeah. and yeah. there's mist yeah same with like the roland joffe movie the mission yeah. when they're up mm-hmm. on the yeah. above the waterfall and there's these great moments where the jungle becomes yeah it's like this big yeah kookaloris right with all the rays coming through and it's mm-hmm. and it's backlit and it's cool and you could do that same kind of thing here and that also would have you know conveyed the imposing nature of the god you know like i mean it could have served multi-purposes in that in this instance. case to your point mike the god felt ridiculous like he felt you he didn't feel powerful he just felt like oafish and kind of ridiculous and oh yeah i yeah. happen to be a god which is not really that's why i felt what i was saying before about sort of the clunkiness of those that whole thing is expositionally it, they just sort of rush through it to be like okay yeah the god's ridiculous gore gets mad and he just goes fuck it i hate the gods like it was literally that those four lines well, in fact, now, now you the- say it i can't think of a single god in this film that had any what i would say godlike majesty you know what I mean? Like if you were going to have, I mean, obviously some of the- Well, you don't see half of the ones or most of the ones he kills, which is what I'm saying. Yeah. You had the moments, you would have the moments where you'd be building to these, like you didn't have to have battles consistently, but you you would need to see him more and more realizing that not only does he well, want to kill the gods, but, but he's justified in doing it. Yeah, but in Ragnarok, just to sort of keep it grounded, like that scene where he's hanging and there's that, giant i've forgotten the name of it monster and mm-hmm. he said wait 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 i'm just coming back around again and yes sorry what were you saying kind of thing and he said mm-hmm. now that monster looked suitably vicious serious a major contender to be needed to be killed by uh thor and and probable to kill anyone but thor i mean i didn't expect thor to die at the beginning of ragnarok but you know what i mean like it looked <laughs> plausible and all its little demons that run after him and the whole thing. And so mm-hmm. when it breaks into the rock track of Led Zeppelin and the whole kind of like fight thing and he wins, you're heroically kind of mm-hmm. with him because it was a heroic action because you set up something to be heroic over. And I feel like if you wanted a god killer to work well here, we needed to see some godlike. I mean, it'd be nice if they actually he killed a god that was quite sympathetic as opposed mm-hmm. to something that was pathetic because if it was yeah. sympathetic we'd actually don't like the God killer for killing it. Whereas here I was kind of, well, we're kind of doing the universe a favor by getting rid of this pathetic character. Yeah. Well, and also (laughs) to your Ragnarok reference, there wasn't an esoteric, like deep character point to Thor's battle in the beginning of Ragnarok. It's what you expect Thor to do. And it was an exciting and well-crafted moment of survival. But it, but, but in the beginning of, uh love and thunder you're creating a villain it's like the joker falling into the vat of acid and the whole thing like this is gore's origin story and it was it was reduced to this one short scene in the oasis because the stuff in the desert with his daughter is just the precursor that doesn't that was not a foregone conclusion that that would make him do that it's the moment in the oasis that but uh to, to pick up on your Batman reference, it was the scene where he disfigured Jerry Hall that made the Joker a worthy adversary for that Batman to fight, right? Like mm-hmm. she, he's disfigured this woman. You feel incredibly like that's that's a horrible thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I see what, yeah. I think the thing is though, like maybe that's on the cutting room floor. I don't know. But yeah, I think we needed to see a bit more. Um, well, so in the, I was watching a bunch of the behind the scenes and apparently they filmed this scene because those strike like Gore's uh, like tattoos in the beginning are like his, are reverential tattoos to the gods. And so there is a scene that they shot of him like disfiguring himself, like ripping the tattoos and the skin from his body to show mm-hmm. how much he has disdain for the gods. And Christian Bale in an interview had said that he felt like the the studio was like you know this is a movie for kids we kind of can't take it there and also that apparently they had a four-hour cut of the movie because they have to do so much ad-libbing and they shot so many extra scenes you know so it's probably in their minds they did service the story Mm. and it's all there they just left the wrong pieces out well okay i mean i'm speculating i'm speculating i challenge you on the scene where thor 
first emerges to help the Guardians of the Galaxy, that action sequence where he smashes the temple didn't have the same resonance to me of a heroic kind of action no. that we got mm -hmm. from the beginning of Ragnarok because we hadn't set up the villains. That was just him being arrogant and funny. It was funny, but I didn't kind of go, yes, Thor, yes. Well, in mm -hmm. Ragnarok, I was like, this is so kick-ass. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't the target demographic. So, yeah, anyway. <laughs> but, but that's, again, really hard on the uh, poor team that made that battle with the Guardians. I mean, as I say, it was funny, like it was. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't, just didn't resonate with me as like building the hero. It just built the, the uh It was comical, sideways. Yeah, it was sideways yeah, movement. Exactly. He's comically unaware as opposed to being genuinely um, uh, heroic. I will say yeah. that, that and, and they started this visual language in Ragnarok of these big, slow, like almost hot, super high frame rate wides, like Frazetta poster mm -hmm. kind of moments of just like Thor, like, ah, you know, doing this thing. They did the one with the Valkyries and whatever in Ragnarok. They did a bunch of those here. I'll take those all day. Like, you give me those. The, the Valkyries sequence in the original yeah. Ragnarok was poetry. That was yeah. visual poetry. I yeah. thought it was gorgeous. And so they, it, it happens a couple times in this uh, film, and I'll I'll take them. Like, just keep keep finding those those poster moments. Well, yeah. and really, like, just looking at the film as a whole, like, it's, there are, there's, there's visual effects in this movie from beginning to end. Almost yeah. every shot <laughs> in this film is a visual effect because, like we were saying, almost more than anything, the locations are otherworldly, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, there's very little uh, uh, practical environments. And, you know, again, like, uh, kudos to all the artists who were building all those massive exactly. environments and executing all those comps. And like, you know, I look at that stuff and I just think like, oh man, that's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, you know, it shows, it shows on the screen. Like, I think for the most part, you know, aside from maybe some of the things we mentioned, I think the effects are, are pretty even, they're pretty solid. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great shots in there that, I think people could be really proud to put on their reel. So does this, so in summary, is this basically major hit band's second album problem in that the second album is really well produced. It just tries to go a bit where the first album did and we want something more, but it's not bad. It's just not the first album. The, yeah, the best quote I ever heard from that was, I can't remember the band now, the guy who said it, but he's, he, they said, oh, so you're making your new album. And they're like, is it going to be, kind of like the first album and the, the guy says, uh, no, why would we go and make the first album or the second album, like the first album when you can just listen to the first album again or something <laughs> like that, you know? And yeah. it's totally true. Like why make the same record twice? Like you just watch the first, if you want Thor Ragnarok, watch Thor Ragnarok. If you want to watch yeah. Love and Thunder, you should watch Love and Thunder, but it would be nice if Love and Thunder had gone yeah. further into the, <laughs> their uh, well, psychedelic well, or something. I don't yeah. Know. We, we've come to the end of our uh, our show, but um, yeah, I, again, not a bad film. I wouldn't not recommend it to someone that hasn't seen it. Um, if you like the first one, you'll like the second one. But uh, yeah, it's certainly... Uh, is there any Marvel film on the current discussion? I'm not saying like I know of them all, in the current sort of discussion around that you are looking forward to? Is there something that you're saying, wow, I can't wait till they do are this? Are they going to do the Silver Surfer? I mean... <laughs> That uh, that's happen? all that's all i want i want to see galactus which i thought we saw briefly and that there's definitely a sentinel in there in there when he kind of goes by and you oh, see the big right dude. the big dude there's a sentinel there. but i thought i saw galactus which i mean i don't think he really hangs say. out with the sentinels but uh i just want to see galactus standing on a planet that one's not on their list of movies to be made though I like know. It, it would just be fun i i all I want to see is a, a super existential, like weird silver surfer movie where yeah. he's like laying on his board, like cruising through the yeah. cosmos, you know, like thinking like, yeah, it'd <laughs> be, be so boring. Everybody would hate it, but I'd be like, oh, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Like let's <laughs> let me, let's let Terrence Malick make a, <laughs> no, a Marvel movie. Yeah. The silver <laughs> surfer movie. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> we, we, with that thought, we will be coming back uh, with, um, as we hinted at before, um, coming up subject to uh, whatever, uh, The Grey Man, and also a look at the remarkable documentary series that's just come out on Disney Plus for uh, ILM. So all of that and more coming up. But for now, I'm going to thank my co-hosts. And uh, Matt, if people want to 
get more pearls of wisdom from you and uh, and follow you on the internets? Where would yeah, they go? Just mattwallen.com and uh, the 8111-8111 podcast. Excellent podcast. And uh, Mr. Diamond? Uh, the diamondbros.com and uh, our virtual production stage and all things technology in Brooklyn, zerospace.co. Zero space dot what, sorry? C-O. C-O, excellent. Co, brilliant. And of course, I'm over at FX Guide. It's great to be back with you guys again. And of course, you, the audience. But uh, yeah, I can't say I missed uh, talking to you guys. So this has been terrific. Yes, so welcome thank you back, so much. Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, until next time, uh, we will leave you. And uh, and again, thank you so much, uh, guys, for, uh, for joining, because it's just been awesome being with you guys. Until next time, see you guys. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.